Hi everyone, welcome to the Yale Vascular Review. I'm Kayuri. And I'm Ocean. And we are back with another exciting episode with some quality research papers. This month we reviewed abdominal aortic aneurysms and as usual looked into papers from the Journal of Vascular Surgery, the European Journal of Vascular Surgery, and the Annals of Vascular Surgery. We actually found a very long list of AAA-related papers for this episode in the three journals. We reviewed all the articles and chose 12 papers that we will be discussing today. Sounds good. Let's get started. The first paper is Editor's Choice from November, European Journal of Vascular Surgery. This was titled, Multicenter Outcomes of Redo Fenestrated Branched Endovascular Aneurysm Repair to Rescue Failed Fenestrated Endographs. Authors include Dr. Carolis and Dr. Diaz from Sweden. This was a retrospective review of all consecutive patients undergoing FBVAR in FIVAR at eight aortic centers. Follow-up consisted of at least yearly CTAs. So they aimed to report the outcomes of redo fenestrated or branched endovascular aortic repair to rescue previous failed FIVARs, which they've termed FBVAR and FIVAR? Yes, exactly. So in this study, 18 male patients receiving FIVARs involving two or three target vessels between 2006 and 2016 underwent FBVAR in FIVAR, as you mentioned, between 2012 and 2019, aneurysm diameter was on average 63 millimeters. Median interval between the procedures was about 53 months. The indication for FBVAR in FIVAR was type 1A endoleak in 16 cases, one graft migration without endoleak, and one migration with significant proximal aortic expansion. FBVAR in FIVAR involved all patent renovisceral arteries and had a median operating time of 260 minutes. Technical success was achieved in 83% of cases. There was no periop or in-hospital death, and during a follow-up of around 27 months, three patients underwent late reinterventions. Overall, survival at 24 months was 70% or more with no aneurysm-related death. They concluded that FBVAR in FIVAR is a technically challenging but feasible solution to rescue prior failed FIVARs. That's cool. I like the study. Very interesting. Let me tell you about this other paper on redo FBVARs I read in the October issue of the European Journal of Vascular Surgery. Ooh, sure. The title is Prospective Multicenter Cohort Study of Fenestrated and Branched Endografts After Failed Endovascular Infrarenal Aortic Aneurysm Repair with a Type 1A Endoleak, and was published by Dr. Ostelrique and Dr. Rico in France. From 2010 to 2019, a prospective multicenter study was conducted that included 85 patients who had undergone FBVAR to treat a Type 1A Endoleak following EVAR. In 30 cases, EVAR was associated with a short, less than 10 millimeter neck or angulated, greater than 60 degrees, infrarenal aortic neck, poor placement of the initial stent graft, sizing error, and or stent graft migration. Type 1A endoleak was observed after a period of about 59 months following EVAR. The authors performed 82 FIVAR and 3 BVAR procedures with revascularization of 305 target arteries. Overall technical success was 94%, with three failures, one persistent type 1A endoleak and two unsuccessful stent graft reimplantations. Intra-op target artery revascularization was successful in 303 of 305 attempts. The in-hospital mortality rate was 5%. 
At three years, survival rate was 64%, with freedom from any reintervention or aneurysm-related death of 40%, and freedom from specific FBVAR reintervention of 73%. At three years, the secondary patency rate of the target visceral arteries was 96%. During follow-up, 27 patients required a revision procedure of the fenestrated or index EVAR stent graft, including six open conversions. They concluded that while manufactured FBVAR was effective in treating type 1A endoleak in patients with failed EVAR, it was at the cost of a number of secondary endovascular and open surgical procedures. Thanks for adding that, Kiri. I love pairing these papers on similar topics together to discuss. It really helps me process all this complex information so easily. Let me add this next paper to our discussion, which is about FBVARs, but after failed EVARs and open repair. Isn't that interesting? Oh, cool. So we are covering all aspects here. Also from European Journal of Vascular Surgery, published in November, authored by Dr. Yuschak and Dr. Adams Group from Heartlands Hospital in the UK, this paper was titled, Fenestrated Branch Endovascular Repair After Prior Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm Repair. So they did a single-center retrospective study to report the outcome of FBVAR for asymptomatic and acute symptomatic proximal aortic pathology in patients with prior open or endovascular AAA repair that was treated between 2007 and 2020. 92 patients underwent FBVAR after prior open surgical repair or EVAR. Indications for intervention were aneurysmal degeneration with or without type 1A endoleak, type 1A endoleak alone, and to create a more durable repair after acute infrarenal EVAR. In total, 348 renovisceral vessels were targeted for preservation and 324 were stent grafted. Primary technical success was 96%. The 30-day mortality rate was 1.1%. Early primary clinical success was 95%. Median follow-up was about 36 months. Estimated overall survival at 1, 2, and 3 years was 86%, 85%, and 70% respectively. 19 patients underwent 28 late reinterventions. Estimated freedom from reintervention at 1, 2, and 3 years was 88, 81, and 81% respectively. They concluded that FBVAR after prior open repair, or EVAR, is associated with low periop morbidity and mortality, and acceptable medium-term survival and freedom from reintervention. Treatment with FBVAR cuff is associated with a higher requirement for distal reintervention than relining of the original repair. I have to say, that was a great start to the episode, learning about the outcomes of these redo complex endo repairs. I'm learning so much today. I agree. It's very interesting. Looking at JVS papers on our list, this next one from the November issue was published by the Vascular Surgery Group at MGH. Authors include Dr. La Moralia, Dr. Kolek, and Dr. Conrad, and the paper is titled Comparison of Treatment Options for Aortic Necks Outside Standard Endovascular Aneurysm Repair Instructions for Use. They identified all patients without prior aortic surgery undergoing elective repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms with neck lengths greater than 4 millimeters at a single institution with EVAR, open repair, and Zenith fenestrated AAA endografts, or ZFEN. They applied device-specific aneurysm neck-related IFU to EVAR patients and a generic EVAR IFU to ZFEN and open repair patients. 
Of 652 patients, 211 had measurements outside of standard EVAR-IFU. Periop mortality was 0.5% overall. For EVAR, treatment outside of the IFU was associated with significantly higher adjusted rates of long-term type 1A endoleak and lower survival. There was no difference in reinterventions or open conversion. In patients not meeting IFU, ZFEN was associated with higher adjusted rates of reinterventions, whereas open repair and EVAR patients experienced similar reintervention rates. Patients outside the IFU experienced lower mortality with open repair compared with either EVAR or ZFEN. When restricted to patients outside the IFU deemed fit for open repair, open repair patients remained associated with lower adjusted mortality compared with ZFEN, but statistical significance was lost in the comparison to EVAR. They concluded that treatment outside device-specific IFU is associated with adverse long-term outcomes. Open surgical repair is associated with higher long-term survival in patients who fall outside of the EVAR IFU and should be favored over EVAR or ZFEN in suitable patients. A three-vessel-based fenestrated strategy may not be a durable solution for difficult aortic necks. That's interesting. Sounds great. Well, now that you mention EVAR and difficult aortic anatomy, I remember this paper, um... November JVS issue. This was titled Anatomic Eligibility for Endovascular Aneurysm Repair Preserved Over Two Years of Surveillance. Authors include Dr. Matsumura for the intact investigators. Patients from the non-invasive treatment of abdominal aortic aneurysm clinical trial were included in this analysis. Females had baseline AAA maximum transverse diameter between 3.5 and 4.5 cm, and for males, it was 3.5 and 5 cm. 192 patients were included in this analysis, 168 males and 24 female patients. Of these, 85% were eligible for EVAR at baseline, and 85% after two years of follow-up. Of the 164 EVAR candidates at baseline, 98% remained eligible over two years of surveillance. Insufficient neck length was the most common reason for both ineligibility at baseline as well as loss of candidacy over two years. They concluded that the majority of patients eligible for EVAR when entering a surveillance program for small AAAs remain eligible after two years. Since the last paper highlighted pre-op surveillance and planning, do you want to hear about some papers I found about preoperative risk scores? Sure, sounds great. Okay, cool. So the first one here is from November JBS titled Pre-op Risk Score Accuracy Confirmed in a Modern Ruptured Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm Experience, published by Dr. Hemingway and Dr. Starnes from the University of Washington in Seattle. A retrospective review of all patients with ruptured AAAs who had presented to a single academic center from 2002 to 2018 was performed. Patients were divided into three cohorts according to when practice changes had occurred. The pre-endovascular aneurysm repair era, 2002 to 2007, the pre-Harborview risk score era, 2007 to 2013, and the modern era, 2013 to 2018. This paper's preoperative risk score assigns one point for each of the following, age greater than 76 years, pH less than 7.2, creatinine greater than 2 milligrams per deciliter, and any episode of hypotension. During the 17-year period, 417 patients with ruptured AAAs were treated at the University of Washington. Of the 118 patients treated in the modern era, 45 had undergone open aneurysm repair, 61 had undergone EVAR, and 12 had received comfort measures only. 
They found a statistically significant linear trend between the pre-op risk score and subsequent 30-day mortality for all patients combined, for open repair patients alone, and for EVAR patients alone. For all repairs, the 30-day mortality was 15% for a score of 0, 36% for a score of 1, 68% for a score of 2, and 100% for a score of 3 or 4. Hmm, that's interesting. So, the goal of the study was to prospectively validate the Harborview scoring system in the modern era, and their results confirmed the accuracy of a 4-point preoperative risk score in predicting 30-day mortality in the modern ruptured AAA patient. Yes, exactly. You know, sometimes as I pipette for hours in the lab and dissociate, I think to myself, not all risk scores are created equal. What? What do you mean? Well, that's the title of the next paper I want to highlight. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, published in the December issue of JVS from Dr. Daguerre and Dr. Schirmerhorn from BIDMC, it was titled, Not All Risk Scores Are Created Equal, a comparison of risk scores for abdominal aortic aneurysm repair in administrative data and quality improvement registries. They included patients who had undergone elective AAA repair from 2012 to 2015 in the National Inpatient Sample, NIS, Vascular Quality Initiative, VQI, and National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, or NISQIP, datasets to validate three risk scores, Medicare, the Vascular Study Group of New England, or VSG&E, and the Glasgow Aneurysm Score, or GAS. They identified 25,000 NIS, 19,000 VQI, and 8,000 NISQIP patients who had undergone elective open or endovascular AAA repair. Overall, the Medicare risk score was more likely to overestimate mortality in the quality improvement registries, and the VSG&E risk score underestimated mortality in all the databases. I won't get into all the technical details here, but they concluded that although the VSG&E risk score appeared to perform better in the quality improvement registries, its overly optimistic mortality estimates and its reliance on detailed anatomic and clinical variables reduces its broader applicability to other datasets. This next paper looked at outcomes of a few different endographs. Do you want to tell us about it? Um, sure. This was from European Journal of Vascular Surgery in the October issue. The title was Limb Graft Occlusion Following Endovascular Aneurysm Repair for Infrarenal Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm with Zenith Alpha, Excluder, and Endurant Devices, a multi-center cohort study. Published by Dr. Bogdanovich and Dr. Roy's group from Karolinska University in Sweden. All the patients with standard EVAR as the primary intervention for infrarenal AAA between 2012 and 2018 at five Swedish vascular surgery centers were included in this multicenter retrospective cohort study. Limb graft occlusion was defined as a total limb occlusion regardless of symptoms or a treated significant stenosis. A total of over 900 patients were included. 84% were males, mean age was 76 years, and median AAA diameter was 59 millimeters. During median follow-up of 37 months, 55 occlusions occurred. 39 were zenith alpha, 1 with excluder, and 15 with endurin. In the NCC analysis, the following were associated with an increased risk of limb graft occlusion, the zenith alpha device, external iliac artery landing, and external iliac artery diameter less than 10 millimeters. They concluded that endograft device type is an independent risk factor for limb graft occlusion after EVAR. The zenith alpha demonstrated an increased risk of limb graft occlusion compared with the endurin and excluder devices. Oh, did you say zenith? Yes, why? 
Well, it reminded me of this paper from Finland, published by Dr. Varamaki and Dr. Suomenen's group in the December JVS, titled Post-Op Imaging Follow-Up at Two Years as a Predictor of Long-Term Outcomes After Endovascular Aneurysm Repair. From 2000 to 2010, 282 patients with a AAA had undergone elective EVAR with the Zenith stent graft. The patients were followed up annually until the end of 2019. They were categorized into two groups according to the presence of any endoleak or sac shrinkage at two years. Group A included those with no detectable endoleak plus aneurysm sac shrinkage of greater than 5 millimeters, and Group B included those with any type of endoleak and or no significant aneurysm sac shrinkage. The mean follow-up was 83 months, and the overall survival at two years was 84%. No significant difference was found in overall survival between groups A and B. However, a significant difference was found in freedom from AAA rupture at 12 years, favoring group A. Furthermore, in group A, the freedom from reintervention was 95% at 12 years, compared with only 31% in group B. They concluded that patients without an endoleak and a reduction of greater than 5 millimeters in aneurysm size at 2 years had significantly fewer late reinterventions and ruptures during long-term follow-up compared with their counterparts using the Zenith stent graft. Well, Kiri, since you mentioned endoleaks, this paper published by Dr. Gargiulo and Dr. Mascoli's group from Italy titled Tailored Sac Embolization During EVAR for Preventing Persistent Type 2 Endoleak was published in Annals of Vascular Surgery in October. Patients at high risk for persistent type 2 endoleaks who underwent EVAR with AAA sac coil embolization were prospectively collected into a dedicated database from January 2012 to March 2015. The endoluminal residual sac volume not occupied by the endograft was calculated on preoperative CT and the concentration of coils implanted from each patient was evaluated. AAA volumetric evaluation was conducted by dedicated vessels analysis software. Persistent type 2 endoleak presence was evaluated by contrast-enhanced ultrasound at 6 and 12 months. Among 326 patients undergoing standard EVAR, 61 were considered at high risk for persistent type 2 endoleaks and were submitted to coil embolization. The median AAA total volume and median endoluminal residual sac volume were 156 cc's and 46 cc's respectively. The median number and concentration of coils positioned in the AAA sac were 5 coils and 0.17 coil per cubic centimeters. Among this high-risk population, the incidence of persistent type 2 endoleak was 30% and 23% at 6 and 12 months, respectively. According to their results, coil concentration and endoluminal residual volume can affect the efficacy of the AAA sac embolization in prevention of persistent type 2 endoleak. Moreover, concentration of coil more than or equal to 0.17 coil per cubic centimeter might be considered to determine the tailored number of coils. That's all good, but important question. Ocean, if you were an endoleak, which type would you be? What? I'd be type 5. I'm there, but you can't find me. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I'll be type 1. Why? Oh no, I'm just basic. Well, looking at non-basic endoleaks, there was a paper in the December JVS titled Outcomes of Translumbar Embolization of Type 2 Endoleaks Following Endovascular Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm Repair. This came out of NYU, and its authors include Dr. Charitable, Dr. Veith, and Dr. Kane. 
They conducted a retrospective review of patients with type 2 endoleaks after EVAR treated with translumbar embolization from 2011 to 2018 at a single academic institution. Treatment indications were the presence of persistent type 2 endoleaks and aneurysm growth greater than 5 millimeters. SAC stabilization was defined as growth less than 5 millimeters throughout the follow-up period. 30 patients were identified. The mean maximal SAC diameter at type 2 endoleak discovery was about 6 centimeters. The mean time to intervention from endoleak discovery was 34 months with a mean growth of about 0.8 centimeters during that time period. Mean follow-up time after embolization was 19 months. 11 patients had evidence of persistent type 2 endoleaks on initial imaging after the embolization procedure, four requiring a second intervention. Factors associated with persistent endoleak after initial embolization were larger aneurysm diameter at the time of initial endoleak identification and the use of antiplatelet agents. The use of anticoagulation was not a significant risk factor for endoleak recurrence or aneurysm growth after embolization. Okay, so their conclusion was that translumbar embolization of type 2 endoleak is a safe and effective treatment option for type 2 endoleak with aneurysm growth after EVAR. And patients taking antiplatelet medication and those with larger aneurysms at the time of endoleak identification appear to be at increased risk for persistent endoleak and need for subsequent procedures following the initial translumbar embolization. These patients may require more intensive monitoring and follow-up. Yeah, exactly. We're getting close to the end of this episode. Right, but before we go, this last paper is really interesting. It was published in Annals October issue by Dr. Wang's group from China. It was titled, Combined Detection of Plasma TNF-alpha Converting Enzyme in NOTCH1 is Valuable in Screening Endoleak After Endovascular Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm Repair. A total of 110 patients with AAA who underwent EVAR were enrolled in this study, and plasma taste and NOTCH1 concentrations were measured prior to and six months after EVAR. 24 patients developed endoleaks six months after EVAR. Both postoperative plasma taste and NOTCH1 concentrations were higher in patients with endoleak than in those without endoleak. Combining the detection of plasma NOTCH1 and taste concentrations could improve the accuracy in determining endoleak presence. The predicted probability cutoff of 0.22 yielded a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 83% for endoleak presence. They concluded that plasma taste and NOTCH1 levels can discriminate patients with and without endoleak six months after EVAR and may have a potential role in screening patients requiring CTA. How interesting. A screening test for endoleaks. Sounds cool. And that concludes our episode. Wow. That was a lot of cool acronyms. FIVAR, BVAR, FBVAR, EVAR, TVAR, LEVAR, CLEVAR. Oh, wait, what? I don't think CLEVAR is a thing. Are you just trying to be clever? Maybe. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this month and accompanying us on this endovascular sleigh ride through the aorta. Happy holidays! And thank you to Dr. Cardella, our residency program director, and Dr. Tonneson, our associate program director, for your continued support and guidance. Please feel free to leave feedback on our Twitter or Instagram posts, and be sure to subscribe to Yale Vascular Review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. We love to see how many of you are listening each month. And on that note, the winner for our last month's episode giveaway is Jay Shahani. Congrats, Jay! And thank you, everyone, once again for joining us. Happy holidays. 
And until then, hope you all have the best holiday season ever.